beside myself I'm beside myself Hey Tall Skulls, welcome back to another episode of Talk Tall with me because you, and by you I mean a select few of you, are regular writer-inners with very valuable information that we just don't want to lump and lump and lump into each episode, but we still want to address right. it. So so we've got another episode for you here. It is story time with the Momes, and the stories are written by you. That's right. Fa- fact time. Yes. It's fact time. So let's start, I think. We're going to start with some emails. <clears throat> Your emails, sir. We have an email here from Negan A. Subject line, Kerouac. Message. Starting an email is awkward. Hi! I guess that would do. (laughs) Yes. But hey, I was listening to the Deadbeat episode the other day and something hit me. Jack Kerouac has written The Dharma Bums, which focuses on his friendship with the anachro-primitivist Gary Schneider who introduced him to Buddhism. Throughout the whole novel, Kerouac tries to get that which Snyder talks about, but simply can't. He's just going through a phase, unlike Snyder, who is an authentic. Now, how would that relate to the song Dharma for One? I've read an interview with Ian in which he states the following. And I left home without a guitar, Anderson says, obviously. It was about what I could physically carry, so I left with a flute, a harmonica, a tin whistle, and a big fat book by Jack Kerouac called Desolation Angels. I had a little suitcase about this big, mine's two foot in width, and a big overcoat that my dad gave me. I got in the van and we went to Lutton to seek my fortune as a musician. Since the first half of Desolation Angels oozes the fragrance of We Used to Know, he might have tried more Kerouac. I assume Dharma for one could have been inspired by the Dharma bums, sneering at those who were temporarily taken by Eastern spirituality. Also, if you listen to the Dharma chant in the song, He's using melisma subtly. It's a very common singing technique in my country, specifically for traditional songs that deal with mysticism and a lot of Eastern countries. So maybe he's vocosatirizing? That was long. I apologize. <laughs> we have the most self-effacing correspondence, I think. I know. It's, it fits in perfectly with our, our theme, yes. so I, I like it just fine. Thank you very much, Negan. Really appreciate hearing from you and all of the the illumination which you are providing us as it relates to the literature influences on the songs of Jethro Tull. Really, really valuable stuff. Yeah, as as with last time, the reading list will be in the show notes. Uh, we expect a report by next Monday. That's right. So he said he only took what he could carry, yeah. obviously. Do you think it was a matter of I don't have room for this this penny whistle. Oh, wait, it fits perfectly into this flute. <laughs> Do you think he just stored it inside the flute? You know... I hope so, anyway. It is definitely it is definitely a possibility. It is also, you know, uh, it's an issue where to, where, to, where to store your penny whistle. Where does one store one's penny whistle? The real question is, what did he store inside the penny whistle? 
A penny. I mean, that's, obviously. That's right. You got it. Ten, po- <laughs> ten points to Nicodor. <laughs> All right. We have we got a hot button issue here, Omen. I have to say. Okay. This is the most response we've gotten on a single issue. Okay. From listeners. All previous writer inners. And all from across the pond. So take that as you will. I take it to mean I take it to mean from England. Yeah. Well, I mean yes. Or but. the British Isles. Uh-huh. So we have from Anglo correspondent John. Hello, John. This is in reference to Deadbeat to an Old Greaser and the Shadows did FBI. Oh, great. Okay. Wait a minute. Are you saying that we have more than one correspondence on that specific line? We we do now, yeah. Oh my gosh. And the shadows did FBI. John says the Shadows, British guitar band who joined with singer Cliff Richard, released the single FBI in February 1961. I feel so dumb. Mm-hmm. Now Doc Savage. I'm sure I won't be the only one of your British listeners, and you weren't, to pull you up on this, but the Shadows were, and perhaps still are, a band. And they had a song called FBI, which either Martin or Ian pastiches for a bar when the lyric name checks them. Great episode, by the way. Omen, having lived in London, might know what I mean when I say that British people, very generally speaking, are so much more downbeat than Americans, who always look on the bright side. When I lived in New York City, I just about got by on my innate pessimism and self-deprecation. But when when I moved to Los Angeles, I really had to change things up or, quite literally, no one could understand me. The sunny side of the street is the only side of the street in Los Angeles. So, I'm not surprised you don't love Deadbeat in the way that Ian would have written it, or a British person would listen to it. The sense of lost opportunities and missed chances and congealed romanticism is where we live over here. We know it, we mock it, we love it, and it would seem horribly gauche if we were ever to admit that we were really trying hard to overcome it. Mm. The song speaks to that. And I couldn't agree more about the saxophone, except for Charlie Parker and John Coltrane, and the fact that it was David Bowie's first instrument. Ah. Basically, it is torture, you're quite right, Omen, yet geniuses have found something to do with it. Still loving your work, and thank you for the kind words, Doc Savage. Thank you very much, Doctor. That, wow, a lot, so much to unpack with that. Nick, where, where do you want to start? The saxophone? Yes, I'm glad you suggested that. Well, you know, in the, in the, hands, in the hands of an artist, a pair of thumb screws can really become transcendent. There you go. That was, that was beautifully poetic. Thank you. And, and tortured. It was beautifully thumbscrewed. <laughs> and finally, from Paul, his subject is Chasing Shadows. Good afternoon, Nick. Good afternoon, Omen. Aside from taking mock-outraged exception to your condemnation of Dee Palmer's sax solo. Oops. The sleeve notes call it a late-night sax solo, which I think is beautifully evocative and accurate. I thought your critique of From a Deadbeat to an Old Greaser was particularly excellent. Omen's intro to the show was possibly the most magnificently bonkers yet, and I chuckled openly as I stood at my sink and tackled the lunchtime dishes. Barflies and regulars. Have a whole handful of the dog. Prop up the architecture of your local establishment and keep your balance as the stool becomes increasingly unsteady. Because it's time to talk tall to me. I enjoyed your crisp summation of the beatnik culture of the 1950s and what happened to all those ancient, yet never old, heroes. Mm. I found it framed the song very clearly in my mind, and if anything, made it seem even more yearningly nostalgic than I'd ever found it before. I can't go so far as to say depressing. We had a lot of people reach out and say, it's not depressing, it's just... It's just British. It's just British, it's glum. I've always been rather fond of this one, if I'm honest, but horses for courses, as they say. <laughs> one thing I'm excited to share with you regarding the lyric is the line about the shadows played FBI. Your take on this line was poetic, original, and invited debate and interpretation as is only right and proper. 
but if you are a long-term resident of Blighty, a more prosaic and possibly more obvious reading is immediately apparent. The Shadows were, and may well still be, a rock and roll group who enjoyed considerable and extensive success in Britain from the late 1950s. Mainly famous for backing Cliff Richard, a singer who was ostensibly marketed as an English Elvis Presley. Hmm. Although the analogy doesn't really hold up, and who still performs aged 80 to this day. My goodness. I don't believe Cliff's fame has crossed the pond to the U.S., although I'd be fascinated if you do know of him and how he comes across in America. He has laterally become a divisive, even controversial figure in Blighty. Anyway, I digress. As a beatnik Gandalf would say, let's go back to the shadows. I'm just going to play a Cliff Richard song here. Yeah. I am very curious to know why he's controversial. That's interesting. He probably said some racist things. Probably. It's so funny how we don't talk anymore. It's so like the English ABBA, I would say. That was very ABBA, yeah. I did a Google search for, like, top hits of Cliff Richard, and, and this was one of them. It's We Don't Talk Anymore by Cliff Richard. Did you happen to find the song FBI by The Shadows? I did. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yep. So The Shadows also enjoyed a career in their own right without a singer, playing memorable pop instrumentals led by the instantly recognizable resonant telecaster twang of their highly adept and I'm pleased to say still living lead guitarist, Hank Marvin, whose sound and style remains much imitated and admired among British guitarists to this very day. Mm. The two most famous tunes in the Shadows repertoire are Apache, featuring a cod Native American beat with a wonderful lone prairie guitar tone. A certain other song called FBI. You will instantly recognize that the opening line of Hank's guitar melody is exactly copied by Martin Barr as the guitar figure that underlines the melody of played FBI on From a Deadbeat. Mm. Just another musical quotation on an album that cheerfully references other tunes. Let's listen to FBI first. Yep. Let's listen to Martin. And the shadows did Yeah, it's in a different tempo, but it's it's there. It's recognizable. Yeah, if you're yeah. familiar with it, it, it would be super obvious. So keep your ears peeled for other wee musical biddies elsewhere, which I reckon we just don't catch them because we don't know them, unfortunately. Yes. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on Bad-Eyed and Loveless. Between that one and Deadbeat, we seem to enter a sort of dark heart to the album, Ah, albeit one that shakes itself down and picks up before too long. Take heart. This time next week, lovely fellas, I continue to thank you for this marvelous journey you both provide. Well, Nick, I have three big takeaways from that last batch of emails. Mm -hmm. First of which, we have the sweetest, most considerate listeners that any podcast has the the pleasure of calling their fans. Agreed. Second of all, there are lots of details that we're just just going (laughs) to miss. Right. Because we haven't heard every single piece of music ever. And especially, I think we're quite deficient on English popular music from the... 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Unfortunately, they don't make a vitamin that we can take to just just supplement our, our diet with that. So we will forever be deficient in that. Yeah, yeah. I would take a one a day of of British rock. If there was only some kind of some kind of musical lime which we could squeeze into our daily rum. Yeah, I, I'd be fine with that. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. And then my third takeaway. Oh, I just remembered what it was. And my third takeaway (laughs) is 
you know, this this interesting kind of discussion of the British psyche mm-hmm. as opposed to the American psyche. I mean, I I think of myself and you as being, you know, quite dour and quite quite pessimistic. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think that's partly because we're East Coasters. Yes. And... But even our perspective, I, I do have to remind myself, is really different from a, you know, the, the British the British version of, of that. Yeah. East Coasters from the Finger Lakes, so we're used to, to heavy winters. I think that, that kind of bears down on, on a person after a while. Yeah, we have snow in our soul. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I like that. That's another, another poetic turn from you, Oman. I appreciate um, mm, it. Eh, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's an incurable disease, I'm afraid. <laughs> But it's true that in in England, you know, there there is a, a really it's hard to describe. But I maybe someday I will be able to put my finger on it. Well, I mean, our English respondents are super erudite, so they they're doing a pretty good job at explaining it for us. I think that's right. Which is is what we rely on in this podcast. You guys explaining more than than we could ever do. Explain tall to me. <laughs> we will talk about you writing to us about tall. That's right. As a stretch. Nick, I have an email from Paul M., who writes in the subject line, One man in his time plays many parts. Good afternoon, Nick. Good afternoon, Omen. I hope you fellows are keeping well as ever and haven't got sick of the sound of my email in a manner of speaking. As much as I hate to break the mathematical sanctity and general round-numberedness of your magnificent 300-episode plan, to say nothing of making extra work for you, I'd like to add my voice to that of your contributor Abu Jethro bin Moms in considering Ian Anderson's solo albums as valid and necessary part of a discussion of the Tull canon as a whole. Some musos have a clear-cut division between their band and their solo career. Pete Townsend's solo albums, for example, often contain songs he tested out with The Who, but then felt couldn't be hooed up convincingly and needed a different sound. But I feel Ian Anderson has always blurred this distinction at least as early as 1980s, when, regardless of the reasons why, he ended up retconning the A album from what was ostensibly a solo project during its recording sessions into a full-fledged Jethro Tull album. But aside from the political or economic reasons behind these changes, I think we need to pull the solo albums into the discourse, mainly because they're all part of Ian Anderson's worldview slash development as a creative writer slash musician. And as such, I find it indivisible from his day job, or at least not divisible enough. Walk Into Light, Ian Anderson's first official solo work, is certainly a radical departure from anything recorded by him and Jethro Tull at that time, and often gets overlooked as a result. But I find it impossible to listen to it without knowing that Under Wraps would never get made were it not for the obvious lessons he learned from making Walk Into Light. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'll leave to you to come to in time. As it is very, very much of a sonic piece with under wraps in so many ways. The same can be said of the secret language of birds, which appears to have been recorded around the same time as JTEL.com. Yes, in fact, there's an advertisement for the secret language of birds at the end of JTEL.com. Mm-hmm. And would seem to be a largely acoustic counterpoint to the mainly heavier rock songs of the earlier album. Perhaps it was all conceived as a double album, and Ian Anderson later decided to split it, Guns N' Roses' Use Your Illusion style, into two albums, each with their own distinctive mood? Question mark? I can't argue the case quite as convincingly for Divinity's 12 Dances with God, as that was created after a specific commission from EMI, But hey, it's a slippery slope. You review one solo album, you gotta do them all. And besides, Ian Anderson is Jethro Tull. We all just live in it. (laughs) Uh, But I can't stress enough that everything I say is a mere suggestion. It's your show, and, er, I just live in it too. Thank you as ever for it. Dear Momes, continue doing your sterling work. I remain yours, Paul M. So, Nick, this this email led us to have a rather robust conversation, did it not? It did. It definitely did. Yeah, we we thought about it. We talked about it. We cried about it. We cried. We wept on each other's virtual shoulders. And ultimately, we decided we are going to stick to the 300. 
That's right. We are not going to dabble into the solo stuff because that opens up the door of, well, I mean, Martin's been in Jethro Tull for the bulk of the band. Why aren't we doing his solo stuff? Right. And, you know, Paul, I want to acknowledge the validity of your suggestion. 100%. That, you know, we could totally make the choice to discuss everything that Ian Anderson has ever has ever done as an artist. But this podcast was started with the intention of really focusing in on the band Jethro Tull. And so where we've decided to draw that boundary line with a couple of exceptions is around the official Tull stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I really like Ian's solo stuff. I really, really am fond of Ruby's dance. Very much so. That is my favorite of his. Yeah. But I think that for our sanity and also for the focus of the podcast, it is going to be better for us to focus on the the strictly Jethro Tull albums, with the exception that we have made of Thick as a Brick 2 and Homo Erraticus. Yeah, I think that about covers it. Honestly, I've listened to Walk Into Light, and I don't think we need another album that sounds like that beyond... A or under wraps. We, I think we'll get it. But we encourage you to talk Anderson about all the solo works amongst yourselves and, mm-hmm. uh, and to send us your thoughts if you wish. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm very much happy with that. Okay, Omen, next for you. Yes, we have an, I was going to say a little email, but that would be inaccurate. We have an email from James V. Subject, writing tall to you. This is an email, but it is also a... Message. Greetings, well-met fellows. Hail. little reference there for you. (laughs) Discovered your podcast last week during a faintly desperate search for someone with whom I could geek out about Good Godmother. I was immediately drawn in by your discussion thereof, went back to your first episodes, and have now made it up through your mome tomes on the Aqualum album. To say I'm addicted would be putting it mildly. Your fecklessly erudite madcap approach is, for me, perfectly suited to the Tull catalog and the way that insights and hilarity spew forth from the podcasty stew that you brew is a thing of utter beauty. Parentheses, and the beastie. <laughs> Just, just buckle in, Nick. There's, it's just, it's in first gear. My own Jethro Tull journey began around 1990, when nine or ten-year-old me heard Locomotive Breath on the radio, and was completely bowled over by its piano intro, propulsive power, and grunty flute solo. Commandeering a copy of Original Masters that I discovered among my parents' cassettes, I began tulling out all the time on my yellow Walkman, captivated and fascifrightenated <laughs> by the magical, mysterious music entering my ear holes. Soon I was spending my birthday money on tull albums and approximating bits of thick as a brick. I especially loved the Childhood Heroes section on one of those plastic recorders we all played in elementary school, and yes, we all did. Mm-hmm. those distinctly. I checked out the 20 years of Jethro Tull VHS from our local rental place and a slew of weird-ass visuals began <laughs> to complement the music, further intriguing and disturbing my young mind. Mm-hmm. I should mention here that I grew up white, male, and Mormon in a suburb of Salt Lake City, Utah. And of my myriad musical obsessions during those early years... That with Tull set me particularly apart from my general cultural surroundings and most of my peers. Parentheses. See also Prince. End parentheses. I I love to also see Prince. Yeah. Anyway, once I began to discover the many eras and evolutions of the band, it was all over. I was a Tullian for life. I inhabited the songs, devoured the liner notes, dissected the lyrics, talked Tull with or at whomever I could called on to provide music for religious meetings, funerals, baptisms, etc., I would blend hymnified tall tunes, among others, into the prelude music before the services. Oh my god, that's my favorite detail of that email. <laughs> Amazing. <sighs> that's that's the true the true sermonizing and preaching is to to work their music into other other yeah. things to expose I, people unaware. I wonder how Ian would feel about that being so anti-religious. 
to know that his music was being used for those purposes. I, I just think it's, it's brilliant. It is. I wrote flute solos into songs that my high school band played in assemblies. Later, I would reference Velvet Green in college literature courses and baffle beguile British friends by spouting bits of argot, e.g. coughed up a tenor on a premium bond win, of which I had little or no real understanding. (laughs) Over the ensuing years, I have accrued all the albums, DVDs, box sets, etc. several times over in many remastered and expanded cases as well as the inevitable list of friends and exes who just don't get it, Mm. all the while wrestling with life in general and the weirdly wonderful lessons of loving a weirdly wonderful, cynical, hopeful, complex, comforting, maddening, aging minstrel. All of which has made finding your podcast a truly joyful occasion. Like discovering a tribe of parallel weirdos, steady on there, with who have been loving, engaging, grappling, and living with Tull's music in similarly fierce and thoughtful fandom over roughly the same years that I have. It's like Talk Tull to Me is creating a modern virtual version of the Tull fan convergence at the Sunbury Jazz and Blues Festival. Finally, and perhaps needlessly to say, I have thousands of reactions while listening to the <laughs> moans. Yeah. Yeah, many of these come bursting out in the form of opinions, corrections, and commentary ineffectually shouted at my speakers, and I will likely feel compelled to share at least a small sample of these with you at some point. I have a surprisingly strong desire to weigh in on 17. Mm. But for now, I have clearly reached the point in the flute solo where things have gotten indulgent and meandery, (laughs) so it's high time for the band to come cosmically crashing back in. So, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And please pardon my somewhat sentimental pontificating. Cheerio, Jameson of a gun. Jameson of a gun. Oh. There you go. Thank you, Nick. Uh-huh. Uh, again, with the with the traditional Talk Tall to Me fan apology at the end of the email. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A great jump start. Totally checks out 100%. I'm just so tickled by, you know, being at, at a religious service. <laughs> And hearing the, the little tall tunes come in. I can definitely hear dun 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 at a funeral. It would work, right? Yeah. Especially over dee, over dee, a great dee, big dee, organ. Scream. Anything played slowly on an organ, regardless of what it is, works. That's right. It works. There's an episode of the simpsons where bart switches up the music to the the choir and they sing inagata davida mm. by iron butterfly mm-hmm. <laughs> and the and the priest is like wait a minute who is this iron butterfly oh no and now please rise for our opening hymn uh in the garden of eden by iron butterfly <laughs> Remember when we used to make out to this hymn? <laughs> Wait a minute, this sounds like rock and or roll. And I just want to say there, James, the reference to buying basically every iteration of every album that comes out because yes. they all have different tracks, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know, listeners, you may or may not have heard, but A is coming out to celebrate its 40th year yes. in April with new bonus tracks, baby. So we await with with bated faces. Yeah. What additions might be in there, things that we've never heard before. Mm-hmm. I will have to tweak the schedule again to make it all fit in, but we'll make it work. 
very excited. You're you're a spreadsheet master with these oh, with these oh songs. Gosh. You really have been I'm I'm listening to the songs over and over and over. I'm combining instrumental pieces. I'm if if I've got two tracks from the same album that are both like a minute long, I'll make those fit to work because yeah. I'm dedicated to make it at just 300 episodes. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. I've got a slew from James Son of a Gun as he ha- is also like Joe catching up. So we'll just go through and he, as he is hitting different tracks, he's chiming in. So I'm assuming as time goes by, we will get less of a thought dump and it'll just be episode by episode as, as everybody else. But we're starting here. I'm still catching up. So maybe someone has already written in to address these points in the pod past, which is my pod future. Mm. But I just heard the saturation episode, and I felt like two revelations from the Warchild 40th anniversary liner notes would please you. Mm. Apparently, the voice at the beginning of Warchild is that of Jackie, the tea lady, who worked at the bar at Morgan Studios. Oh, my goodness. So that should activate the Jethro Tull protocol, Jackie. Also, in this track-by-track discussion of the songs from or adjacent to the Warchild session... Ian uncharacteristically tells us straight away that saturation is about Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, which made a nightmarish impression on him as a young man, which he later distilled for this song. Wow. What now? I am so intrigued by that. I definitely want to go back and, and listen and look at those lyrics. I wish we had that when we had discussed saturation. Have you read Fahrenheit 451? I did in high school, and I I very much remember enjoying it. Mm. He says, I, for one, am happy to know that Bradbury inspired saturation, which resonates with, not to say confirms, my long association of wondering again with Bradbury's short stories. Hmm. Or that Shona is the tall, dark lady in Rainbow Blues, another tidbit from the aforementioned liners. But I feel fortunate to have encountered this information only after having had years to ponder and hypothesize and develop my own ideas about these songs. Well, and that's the thing about art, isn't it? I mean, you know, if we just wanted someone to know exactly how we were feeling and what we were thinking about, we would write, we just write some prose, you know, write some nonfiction. But but then everything would be very, very boring indeed. And so, you know, the great thing about making music is that it, it does inspire thoughts and feelings and flights of fancies in others. Yeah, I like it. It's more than just a scientific encyclopedic retelling of of the facts that came together to create these pieces. Right. And I mean, what an amazing what amazing information that that is. That's that's fantastic and I can't wait to go back and listen to those songs with that new info. Yeah. I love hearing other listeners examples of misheard tall lyrics and associated interpretations. May I propose velvet mondegreens as a possible designation for such instances? So a mondegreen is is mishearing a lyric. Okay. And ve- velvet mondegreen, velvet, velvet right, green. Right, right, right. It's perfect. I love it. That's great. I'm going to take Omen's joke in the intro about Jeffrey being the missing link in the ladder of evolution as a synchronistic signal to share some of my thoughts on 17. Oh, boy. Ah, yes. I remember that this was promised us at some point. He threatened 17, yeah. yeah. Including an example of the phenomenon referenced previously, the Velvet Mondegreen. First off, I can't recall which of you mentioned an association of 17 with the theme song from that 70s show. That that was me. Big stars in the street, though not performed by Big Star. I hope to help you shake or move beyond the initial distaste triggered by this association. (laughs) This should be relatively easy to do once you consider that one of the teenagers in question is Ian Anderson, whom it is virtually impossible to imagine hanging out with Ashton Kutcher or shouting, we're all right, as per the cheap trickified version of In the Street, Mm. while cruising in a station wagon. Second, I submit to you that the person, or one of the people, being addressed in the song is none other than our old pal Jeffrey Hammond Hammond. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. Not only does Ian seem to be singing to someone with whom he shared meaningful teenage experiences, 
but the general reminiscences and reflections eventually give way to more pointed and specific references, one to painting, and a pair to maintaining a stubbornly eccentric individual style. As above, if my suspicions are correct and Jeffrey is part of the we in this song, then these are not the teenagers of In the Street, hanging out and getting stoned. They're bookish, artsy, eccentric, contemplative types, discussing what they've read, playing in a band together, carrying their belongings in shopping bags, etc. Wow. That analysis truly deserves a master's degree, which we hereby grant you. A Tolkienology degree. An official Tolkienology master's from the University of Feckless Moms, which is worth precisely nothing at all. But that yeah. that is really an amazing, an amazing breakdown and a lot of toothy context there that I think is hard to ignore. Mention of Michael Collins also brings up my Mondegreen for 17. I've always heard the line as we were 17 and the caveman was affecting you. Oh. Which, in my mind, connected to the ape's curiosity of for Michael Collins, Jeffrey, and me. Mm. Suggesting that Jeffrey was impressed by something he'd read about evolution and or was experiencing evolutionary archetypal stirrings in his own being and development. All of which leads us to finally the music. My goodness, I think you talked about how it's sort of an anomaly for tall, rough, loose, jammy, etc. And I agree. So do the members of the band who played on the track, as per the benefit liner notes. Hmm. Clive compares it to the Stones, Martin to T-Rex, Glenn describes it as not very Tull-like. Hmm. There's a looseness and rawness to the composition, and especially the playing that bears some similarity to raucous This Was Era tracks, like My Sunday Feeling or Dharma for One, but with almost none of the jazz inflections that define that era. And compared to the sophistication and precision and complexity of the prog years to come, 17 sounds almost rudimentary. But it's precisely this raw, somewhat naive, I would say primal quality, that makes it a perfect vehicle for the sentiments of the lyrics. 17 is garage rock. It sounds like how you feel, and with caveats, how you play when you're 17. Enthusiastic and a bit bombastic in how you express that enthusiasm. Though, in reality, there's some kick-ass stuff happening in the band. Ian, by contrast, and somewhat predictably, is less fond of 17. Shocker. He acknowledges that he must have thought more of it at the time, noting that it was meant to be mindlessly repetitive in a hypnotic sense, though not in a trivial or imbecilic sense. However, he ultimately dismisses the song as effing boring and a failure. <laughs> it should also be noted that the sentiments of the other band members are all expressed in the context of praising the song, as though they are aware of the unique and powerful mood that they created. Yes. We also like seventeen. We do. We do like seventeen. It's it's not my favorite. It's one of it's one of my favorites. It is one of your favorites. You're right. Yeah. Because I'm a cake man. Because you are a cake man, Johnny. Making that progression that we have made all the way up to songs from the wood at this point, I I'm I have learned to appreciate that earlier stuff more and have and I listened to seventeen after reading that email and I I do feel like I've I've garnered a, a little bit more appreciation for it. Yeah. I do. We have something else from James as well, don't we, Omen? That's right, Nick. Wait a minute. What's that? Sir, sensors have detected another star in the sky. Dear Lord, that's five stars. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. Yes, we have a five-star review from James, son of a gun. Jameson, Jameson of a, I understand the joke. Jameson of a, Jameson of a gun. Jameson of a gun. I understand the joke. Yeah, there we go. I, like I got it. there eventually. Makes me uncomfortable. It, <laughs> I understand why it's funny, but I will not laugh. He, in addition to the five stars, he writes a delightful review, the title of which is A Delightfully Erudite Magic Melange of Tullian Discussion, Analysis, and Buffoonery. Really, a huge fan of the Oxford comma is James. As he should be. Insight, wit, reflection, sincerity, nerdiness, naughtiness, wondering aloud, spontaneous accents, pretended pomposity, wordplay, roleplay, gushing, gusto, 
unwieldy mixed metaphors launched and pursued with an improvisational feckless abandon, all tucked in the warmly weird spiran of a genuine care and affection between our two hosts, the first period of the review. A treat for those converted, as well as the curious. As an 80s-born Tull fan, I'm stoked beyond measure to have discovered these kindred dork spirits. Cheerio. <laughs> uh, thank you, James. Thank you, James. Well written. Very lovely. Indeed. Our streak stays strong at, at consistently five stars. I don't know of anything that has such good reviews, Nick. Any, I mean, any product at all. We only have 18 ratings, but they're all fives. So that's, that's good, right? That's very, very good. Yeah. I'm proud of that. Nick, what else do we have for this episode of Talk Tall With Me? They are stylists. They're very overtly concerned with the uh, image. We've got another Instagram from a user known as Cups and Swords 67, but his name in Instagram is Ian Anderson. Hmm? So, I mean, I'm convinced that it is Ian Probably. Anderson. And he's he's pretty sassy, which I can appreciate, and sticks to my theory that he is, in fact, Ian Anderson. Let's hear what they have to say. What, what Ian Anderson has to say. So this is in reference to Bad-Eyed and Loveless. Mm. They respond, come on, Momes, it's subjective. You wouldn't make apologies for Lolita, I hope, so you can't make apologies for... For Ray Lomas being a dirty old man who likes farts and gets excited by women and is disappointed when he stood up. This is a character song. Now, Kissing Willie, that's a song to apologize for. <laughs> uh-huh. Such such a valid point, and I, I greatly appreciate it. 100%. I mean, there have been plenty of people who have apologized for Lolita, you know, another another topic there. But yes, fair point to remind us that it is a character song. Yeah, great. Thank you for your thank you for writing in. Thank you for your mm-hmm. your thoughts. From Joe on Instagram. Thank you, Joe. He is just finished with Thick as a Brick. This is his final note from Thick as a Brick. The gurgling melody at the start of Thick as a Brick Part Six. I'm ninety nine percent sure that that's John Evan but on a synth instead of an organ. So that right there confirms that there are synths at this time. We've questioned it left and right. I thought there were, then I didn't think there were. It's It's been a chronological disaster, but we, we do have synths at this time. You know you know what we've never done in all of our thinking about it? Looked it up. Yeah. Yeah, researched. Yep, but we didn't need to because we have Joe. And here is the point that he is talking about. thought it was a funny filter on the flute. Oh, silly us. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a flute to me. Uh, to put a finer point on it, I'm only slightly less sure that it's a moog. They were very popular at the time, and to my ears, it has a distinctly moog sound. How do you spell moog? M-O-O-G. Big name in synthesizers. It's funny because just as I started wondering if we weren't reading too much into the lyrics, myself included in my own head, you guys reached the same conclusion. Hmm. The following Ian Anderson impression literally had me laughing out loud in my car. I love this podcast. And here's the impression. Well, I was at a hotel in Cleveland and I saw a dog out the window fighting <laughs> a beggar. <laughs> like, uh-huh, and? And he's like, well, that's it. And the dog won. <laughs> And then my shower stopped working. So that was the the inspiration behind Thick as a Brick. I guess that was our our, our impression. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nick, you may you may find this to be somewhat a betrayal of tradition, but I did just look up what when was the synthesizer invented, and it was in the oh, mid-1950s. I trusted you, Owen. I, I'm so sorry. 
In reference to the story of the hare who lost his spectacles, JmanCelo27 on Instagram writes, Halfway through and loving the breakdown of the lyrics, I'll come clean and say that I've barely paid attention to the lyrics at all through the years, so I'm really getting a lot out of this one. That said, the reason I've barely paid attention to the lyrics is that I've always been so absorbed by the music. In fact, were we to completely remove nostalgic attachment from the equation, this might be my very favorite Tull album. I couldn't possibly disagree more with the idea that the music is too dense, cacophonous, challenging, etc. To my ears, this is Jethro Tull at the height of their musical prowess. See, I've never considered odd-slash-mixed-slash-polymeters as daunting in any way. To the contrary, I see them as something akin to a musical roller coaster. I'm exhilarated by the twists and turns, the dips, the loops, the drops. In fact, wanting to learn how to build my own musical roller coasters was what led me to become a music major. In A Passion Play, we have Tull's biggest and best roller coaster. It even takes time to visit a warped Disney-esque animal story before taking off like a drunken rocket again. On a nominally related note, I hope you guys take some time to visit the Chateau Disaster recordings somewhere down the line. Those were some damn good songs in their own right. Left, right in particular, is one of my very faves. Cheers, as always. Well, thank you, Joe. To each their own when it comes to to tall music, certainly. But yeah, I mean, Passion Play is... It is cacophonous to those untrained, I, I feel comfortable in saying, but but that's why you are our resident musician, and we, we take advantage of that. I also think there's something truly to be said about the, the, the polyrhythmic nature of Tull and how, how it captures the ear and it captures the imagination, and it it's, it's something more nutritious musically than your standard yeah. white loaf, four-on-the-floor fare that is served in many of our musical cafeteria. And when it comes to if if I'm deciding between Thick as a Brick and Passion Play, about 50% of the time I will go for Passion Play. They they both they both do a specific thing for me and I'm not I'm in no way poo-pooing Passion Play. Don't poo-poo the passion, Nick. Post post poo-poo pre-passion polygamy i got nothing soon after on i believe the very next episode the business office of g audi and sons mm-hmm. j mancillo re- writes no sooner do i declare my love for the rhythmic tricks tull employs than you two hit specifically on one of them at the very start of the next episode no less of course i'm compelled to chime in lol when you talk of the parts of this section seemingly like they're breaking off from each other then Quote, somehow meeting in the right places, quote, those are prime examples of polymeter. The somehow is just good old-fashioned math. <laughs> to illustrate, How dare you? if half the band is playing in 4-4 and the other half of the band is playing in 5-4, they will inevitably meet on the 20th beat, 5 times 4 being 20. So what you do is you make sure that both parts resolve themselves in a satisfactory place to come together on that 20th beat. It's not as hard as it sounds when you take into account that they're still playing in the same key and that both are still separated into measures. Whoever's playing in four gets five measure, measure phrases. Whoever's playing in five gets four measure phrases. Taken as a whole, the section works in 20 measure phrases. Math! Buh. Well, JmanCelo27, be gone with your sorcery. <laughs> that is, no, that is actually... The maths. Quite amazing. I didn't realize that that it never occurred to me that the band could be playing in different time signatures simultaneously. But of course, what you say does make sense. Yeah, and that's that is what I really love about music that I I don't think I'll ever grasp without spending years upon years on it. But just the scientific side behind mm. it, the way that it really mathematically works out if you know that and it, and that's all music theory that's all the, yeah. the really like the nuts and bolts of it but it's it's just so cool to think of that going on in the background and there are formulae that that can be utilized to make sure something sounds good essentially was it not albus dumbledore who said ah music a magic beyond 
what we teach within these walls. It it may very well have been Elba Dumbledore. It was. I. It's. Oh, it's it fun. was for fact. Okay. <laughs> All right. One more thing from J Mancillo, I believe. Could be from from Joe. We've got ourselves a new review, and I I'm pretty sure that this is from Joe. If it's not. Thank you, whoever did actually write it. And Elman, you you have that. Don't I you? have that review right here. The review is five stars and is entitled The Perfect Jethro Tull Companion. It reads As someone who has been a Tull fan since my childhood in the early 1970s, I thought I knew basically all there is to know about the band. It is my great joy to say, This podcast has given me an even deeper appreciation of Jethro Tull's music. The hosts, Omen and Nick, are as entertaining to listen to as they are insightful while they break each Tull song down track by track, album by album. I've been binge listening to this baby like the worst Netflix addict, and I'm not going to stop until I'm caught up and have to await each new episode on a weekly basis. If you're looking for a Tull podcast that is both fun and informative, look no further. Talk Tull to Me is that podcast. Two notes. Yes. I think we're the only Tull podcast, <laughs> so it's not like you have many options out <laughs> right. there. Second of all, I I hesitate to accept the the fact that we are breaking each song down week by week and that quite possibly the songs are breaking us down huh. week by week. You know, it, well, it's, it could be a mutual chemical process. There you go. Yeah. At the end of which, there will be no separation between the songs and and us, Nick. We we will be one, one new non-Newtonian fluid. A non-Newtonian fluid composed of Jethro Tull and Nick and Oman. Gross. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> little little club soda get that right. That's up. right. Dab, don't <laughs> rub. Right. All right. And I think that wraps up this episode of Talk Toe with me. Thank you, everyone, as usual, for writing in. Greatly, greatly appreciated. We we love the corrections, the additions, the jump starts, all of it. So please continue to do so. Please continue to share with your friends and enemies, so they can do so as well. Indeed. And we'll be back next week with just another plain old episode. Until then, cheerio. Say cheerio.